All right, this morning we're continuing our, our Advent journey, and we'll be in Isaiah chapter 11. Um, this is a, it's a, was an incredible time of study for me personally. Um, as, and, I've, and I know this is dangerous for me to say at the front because it may mean how long the back end goes. Um, but it was just a tremendous time of thinking and study, and, and there's a lot kind of going on within my own heart as I, as your pastor, I'm trying to wrestle through and think through um, what are we doing, what, what is, what is, what's going on, and, and how, are we, um, how will we grow in our knowledge of the Lord and our application of the knowledge um, uh, of the gospel? How do we see Trinitarian worship translate into missional living? Um, and so um, one of the things that just keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up, and it's very consistent with another statement that I've made here quite often, You've heard me say it this way. Um, people want the law. But what they don't want is for you to tell them what they're supposed to do in light of the law. So they want direction, but they do not want accountability. Um, and I think you can see that, right? I mean, you, for those of you who are parents, is this not true even uh, within your own home? They, they, you know, tell me what to do, but don't you dare hold me accountable for whether or not I did it. Saying it another way is this. Hey, tell us what to think. But don't you dare hold us accountable to why we should think that way and what we should do with it. I am, I am utterly uninterested as your pastor of telling you what to think. Uh, this may sound like a strange statement. I am far more concerned with your development to be equipped and discipled and set free as to how to think in light of the gospel. How to think about different issues and different things because, let me just give you a, just a brief illustration. All this is free, by the way. This is just preamble. Um, Within Proverbs, there's this great set of Proverbs that aren't far apart. If you answer a man, a fool in his folly, you will be like him. Answer a fool in his folly. Wait a minute. I mean, I think they're what? what, uh, One verse apart? So what does that mean? Did, the, did whoever put that together, did, did, did somebody fall asleep at the wheel there? I mean, what, what's going on? Why does Proverbs give us what seem to be just one space apart, these contradicting ideas? Well, I think that's a very small illustration of the Bible is uninterested in telling you what to think. It is trying to transform you into the image of Christ so that you would know how to think. So that as you come upon various situations that this world will throw at us at any angle and curve, you would know how to approach them. And why? For what purpose? Solely for the glory of the Lord. And if that is foundationally how we think, if, if, that, if we understand that everything funnels back to whether or not it glorifies the Lord our God, that would change a lot, wouldn't it? Uh, I won't go any further. I've got, there's a lot kind of roiling around, but that's it for that part. Um, and so let's get to the text before we get too far afield. It all connects, by the way, I promise. All right, so Isaiah chapter 11. Um, this is, and it's beautiful. Again, I encouraged you as we looked at Isaiah 9 that it would be important for you to read chapter 7 and 8 to get maybe a full, fuller picture of what Isaiah was saying there in chapter 9. Same is true here in chapter 11. You would do well to even go far back and read from 7 all the way through 11. Um, to get a, a fuller picture, because this is all connected together. And, and one commentator that you have quoted there in your bulletin says it this way. He says basically that Isaiah 9 deals with the first advent. Isaiah 11 is going to give us a picture of the last advent. And so it's, it's a beautiful book ending and completion of, uh, or, or small story in miniature of the fullness of the gospel of Christ who comes 
uh, in the first advent and changes everything. I love that that's the way the song says that. Everything does change. Everything has changed and is changing because of his presence. We have hope where without him, I don't know that we would have much at all. And so his last advent also serves a very distinct and important purpose to us. And so as we look at Isaiah 11, recognize that we are looking long, longer at the last advent uh, in this particular text. And so um, it would do you well to read chapters 7 through 10 to get the fuller picture. But let me tell you what I want you to get from this passage this morning. Um, It's that out of the ashes of judgment will rise the perfect and righteous Davidic king, Jesus Christ, to usher in reconciliation for God's people and to dwell together with him in a renewed creation for eternity. Now, I know that's a lot, but that is a lot of what we get. And I don't know how to separate it out, but let me say it one more time. Out of the ashes of judgment will rise the perfect and righteous Davidic king, Jesus Christ, to usher in reconciliation for God's people to dwell together with him in a renewed creation for all of eternity. Now, if you were to go back and read chapter 10, what you would read is a chapter filled with judgment. Judgment upon both Israel, Judah, and its enemy Assyria who's coming. And the image that Isaiah gives is very vivid. It's as if it were, they were a forest of trees, and the judgment that is coming will cut down every single one of those trees with the exception of a few pencil-like twigs that will be left. And not only that will they be cut down, but then there will come a burning and cleansing fire which will take care and, and burn it all the rest to the ground with the exception of those little pencil-like twigs. Now, what do you think the pencil-like twigs represent? A remnant. God is always faithful to preserve a remnant of some form lest he would be mocked. It is to his glory that he always preserves some small remnant of people so that his fame will continue. And what we're going to see here in Isaiah 11 is him bringing out a a picture and a fuller picture of what comes and rises out of that judgment. Let me make just a comment here that I've, I've been picking up on. Um, as I have studied Genesis 3.15, as I've studied this, and it's beautifully connected. Notice that every time that you see judgment in Scripture, redemption always rises out of the ashes of it. Even in the last advent, what comes first? The new heavens and the new earth? What comes first? Judgment precedes this rising of the new heavens, or descending in this case, of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, why is that important? Why would that be an important thing for us as God's people to know? I'm not telling you what to think. It helps us to, to, to learn how to think. Oftentimes, what does the evidence of judgment do to the hearts and minds of people? They sink into despair, right? And we saw it. We saw it within God's people, how they, they sank into despair. Uh, think about how um, the, the leaders responded. Think about just even Nehemiah and Ezra's response when they saw the, the temple and the city in ruins. What did they do? They rent their clothing and they were grieved to the core and it broke them to see such a glorious thing that was to be built to the glory and the honor of the Lord in such shambles. Would that we would have that sort of response to this world, which I hate to tell you, is in shambles in many respects. And so, um, it is very important for us to recognize that judgment does not signal the end. For those of you who are in Christ, who care about the glory of the Lord, what does it signal? A new beginning. Gloriously, that's what we're going to see. And that's what I would hope for us as gospel people, that each 
each Advent as it comes and it goes until the last Advent of Christ, that each Advent your hope would instead grow as you draw closer to this renewal and restoration. And that even though there may be, even in this year for some of you, what feels like the winds and the fires and the cutting down of some form of judgment in your life, let me give you hope. If you turn to Christ as you are orienting and fixing your gaze upon this child king who has come, there is hope for you. Much will rise from all that is cut down and burned. So, one of the questions that I want to open with is, and, and this, this also hints at something that I think we all struggle with. It's part of our Western mindset. It's part of kind of who we have become in American culture. We're radically individualistic. Um, and oftentimes our views are way, I think, our visions, our desires, our dreams are just way too small as a result of that. We don't think corporately. We don't think big scale often. Now, that's a general critique. Um, and some of you may do better than others. But in that, let me ask this question. What is your dream and vision for this world? That's a really important question, because if, you're, if your posture is, if you say, well, I think it's all going to burn by fire, so I don't really care, um, that, that's informative, isn't it? That will dictate how you respond to things, if that is your mindset. It will have a supreme impact on how you respond to all of the things that are happening in our world today, from Ferguson to the Eric Garner story to all of the things that are coming down the pipe to what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS, all that stuff. And so if you, if your position is, I don't care, it's all going to burn by fire. Traditionally, what that means is you're not going to be very involved. You'll critique, right? You, you, you'll have a, a strong critique and strong opinions, but I'm not sure that they will be gospel-tinged. I don't know that they will be filled with the hope of Christ. Now, or maybe you, you are Pollyanna and you have own rose-colored glasses and you think, man, we can save this thing. We can really, I think we can fix it. And Jesus probably won't even need to come back. Well, I got bad news for you. Um, you will at some point sink into the morass of cynicism. Or worse, you'll become a stoic, which is kind of leading you back to the other position. And so this is why I think it's critical. We must have these kind of big questions, big ideas. And I know some of you are thinking, just, Cameron, how about you just shut up and preach the gospel? How about we just stick with that and you not get into all this stuff? Well, I read the text and I don't think we can. And so I don't think it's that easy. And so if, uh, if we look at this world and we realize, one, though we cannot save it, ourselves, within our own strength. None of us can ever serve, no man can ever be a king who can broker peace that is eternal. There are kings who can broker peace for but a season, but they can't make it stay because the human heart's desperately wicked and will always pridefully seek its own way. And so if we recognize that, hey, I don't, though we cannot save it, we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can, what we can do is draw people unto the glory of the Lord, which takes their citizenship and, and, and their real politic attitudes from this world into the eternal world, things then begin to really change, don't they? Um, and, and our ability to actually accomplish those things becomes supernatural, which is a whole nother can of worms. But we have to be able to confess and recognize that there is no earthly power. 
This is critical for you to understand. Because and this is I really want you to chew on this one. And that's what we're going to see from this text. There is no earthly power whatsoever that can broker the kind of peace that this world needs and maintain it. That's crucial. Because what I what I see and I hear from all too many is um, a practical belief that it can, which is why we take the positions that we do um, and why we are divided by the principalities and powers like we are. And so we want to be very careful about to whom we submit and to whom we believe can really accomplish these things. Again, it changes everything. All right, so let's get to the text. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll go through verses 1 through 5, and, and to be truthful, we'll spend a lot of time on verse 1, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. But hear God's word this morning. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now that is, I, I cannot tell you how pregnant that verse is with meaning, especially in light of the scene from Isaiah 10 where everything has been cut down. Everything has been burned with fire. You've got a few pencil twigs that can accomplish nothing. They cannot bear the fruit that this one can. And so in the midst of judgment, we have God's incredible, gracious promise that there will come from Jesse a shoot. Now, interestingly, why do you think he chose the name Jesse and not David? Why didn't he say a shoot will come from David? Because 2 Samuel 7 tells us the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise that it would come from this lineage. Who is Jesse, by the way? He's David's dad. Why do you think, because every time the prophet chooses something in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is saying something very deep. So why do you think he said Jesse? Well, let me give you a few possibilities. One, Jesse was of a completely indifferent means and time than David. He was of much humbler means. In fact, Jesse would be much similar to when Christ was born to Joseph and Mary. Very similar type circumstances. So it's an echo that the royal, and it's also a comment on the condition of the current royal line. What's the prophet saying? The royal house is in ruins. The kings have fallen. They cannot do what this king will do. This king will come and rise from much worse means. This, and he's also making a comment about who, is, who really is his father. He chooses not to say David because this one who is coming is a better David. The real David, the David that was longed for, the king that was longed for. So within just this one phrase, a shoot from the stump of Jesse uniquely, is pregnant all sort of political implications, economic implications, and religious implications that uh, we could spend lots and lots of time on. And I just bring it to your attention as something to meditate upon this Advent season. And it's worthwhile because it is an incredible picture in just a few short words of the humble means by which the king will come. And that this king will be like no other earthly king. It is like they are going back to the beginning where the seed started. And so, this king um, will be completely different. Um, and he goes on to, as he says here, um, that it w- this, this king will rise from judgment. This is also a foreshadowing of what is coming for this king. 
This king will also be cut down. He will be felled on a tree. Won't he? This king will suffer the fire of God's wrath for the sin that he takes on for the elect of the world, for God's children. This king, though, will rise from the ashes of that cutting down, from the fire of that wrath and that judgment to newness of life, the resurrected Savior. Even pregnant within this image is the foreshadowing, a type of this Christ and what will happen to him. And so we see straight away that the promise is that God will will bring life where it appears that only death can reign. Remember from 9, as he spoke of Zebulun and Naphtali, what were those areas? Those were the unreachable parts of the world, the, the parts of the world that should have been utterly forsaken, forgotten, where darkness reigned and Samaritans ran around in their false religion. And where does Jesus go first in Matthew 4? Where does his ministry begin? North of the Sea of Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali. The word comes first. Why is that good news to us? Because if you've looked long at your own heart, I'm sure there have been times where you think that you reside in such darkness that the Lord could never reach you. That there is a, there is a place where the Lord cannot go, where angels fear to tread and all that nonsense. Well, the good news to you is that if the light shines deep into that darkness, there's no distance from, which, from him from which you can go. And that is great news indeed. Now, who is that also good news for? Well, for you who are parents this morning. And you have felt uh, as your children age and they begin to question and they struggle with this gospel, with this story that seems just too good to be true and in which the world screams, you all are idiots and fools for believing such nonsense. And they are being assailed on every side from every aspect of culture. For you who are parents, I've got good news for you too. The light can pierce even that darkness. And maybe you say, but Cameron, you don't know how bad I've messed it up. You don't know how bad I've messed up the image of God in my children. No, I do know. Because I have utterly, I stand a pilgrim in ruins in that. And there's no reason for us to try to match scars in this regard, but instead to preach to each other the gospel of hope, which says that even that can be overcome. Amen? And so remember that as you're, and never forget it for all of your days. I love what Edmund Clowney here says in The Unfolding Mystery. He says this, Isaiah pictured the felling of the cedar of Israel's pride. Was all hope then gone? No. Because the stump of the tree remained in the ground and a shoot would spring up to become a standard, an ensign to which even the prophets shared, uh, I'm sorry, to which the nations would be gathered. Two answers were given to the questions of despair that even the prophets shared. Now, let me pause right there for a second. This is really important because if you listen to the din of our age, do you hear other, other than and I'm not making a comment on this, other than Obama's campaign on the issue of hope, what has been the response? Do you hear in our news, do you hear in our political leaders, do you hear this hope, or are you hearing despair? Which sells, by the way. That's why you got to understand the principalities and powers. This is what Clowney says. First, the destruction, it would not be total. That God would spare a remnant. 
That's good news. Second, the destruction would not be final. God would bring renewal. That is, that is incredible news to us, and that is what we're seeing here as it rises from this tree. So let's pick it up in verse 2. Uh, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the one who will rise from the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. It says, The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And let me pause for just a second. Remember the verse that we read that was part of our assurance of pardon was from John, right? What did John the Baptist say was the signal to him that this, in fact, was the Son of God. That the Spirit would rest upon him. Where do you think John got that from? John knew Isaiah 11. And so he was able to see come to pass this prophecy that was 800 years prior to him or so. And so he's able to know, hey, this, this is the one for whom we have been looking for because the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. And the promise is, is that the Spirit of the Lord will bring and equip this one, this king, with wisdom and counsel and might and understanding and knowledge and all of that, all of that will be submissive to the fear of the Lord. Why is that important? What do you think's wrongs with the kings of this earth? What do they submit to? Are they filled with wisdom and counsel and understanding? Can they see what no one else can see? No, that's the problem, isn't it? They're limited. For all the good that they would long to do at the end of the day, they cannot be this king. The Spirit of the Lord does not rest upon them in this way, and they do not submit to the fear of the Lord in the perfection that only Christ could. And then it goes on to say, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, not only does he submit to it, he delights in it. That's the other thing that we would struggle to do, isn't it? We might could come to a place where we submit pretty well, but how many of you, as I say the word submit, ever put the word delight with it? None of us. We're way too, we're way too prideful for that, aren't we? We're way too human for that. And so here, this king, this one on whom the spirit rests, who has all of these things, he delights in the very fear of the Lord. That means his worship is to please the one who sent him and on whom the spirit rests and was given to him. Let me just side note, do you recognize the Trinitarianness of this now? Do you recognize how important the Trinity is to our worship? And so, here the prophet recognizes, and he goes on to say, but with righteousness, I'm sorry, let me back up. It says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor hmm. and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now, this is important because, you know, we oftentimes talk about um, uh, religion versus gospel, which I, I don't like using that term religion because I, it's not an inherently bad word, by the way. Um, but let's just say false religion, religion of works maybe, uh, because you can clean up the outside of the cup, but what's wrong if you don't clean the inside? Increasingly problematic. You then just become a whitewashed tomb and sepulcher instead of a vessel for the glory of the Lord. 
Now, is that said somewhere in the Bible? Yes, and who was it said to? The very ones who should have known Isaiah 11, the Pharisees. So woe be unto us if we think, if this is our ideology, hey, look busy, Jesus might show up. As if he could not see past your wickedness. Woe be unto us if we think it is far more important to make sure that the pastor who has limited vision thinks we are better than we are, not caring whether or not the spirit that can see all the way down to the darkness of your soul, not caring whether or not Christ knows your darkness and how that affects your ability to worship and enjoy the Lord. What do I matter? Who am I that you would need to fool me You've, let, me get, let me just get it. You've fooled me already. And I have fooled you. But there's one we cannot fool. And why is that good news? It would be a terrible thing if we had been led to believe that what we do in darkness doesn't matter and get all the way to the throne of judgment, which comes first, and discover that we had been lied to or led astray or something was omitted. See, what we would say is what some other people said, Lord, look at all that we've done in your name. Cast out demons, done amazing things, built churches, gathered money. Only for him to say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never, ever knew you. So it is very important for us not to get tangled up in what is external, but instead recognize that it is seen by eyes that have been created to see far beyond all of the stuff that we could put up, all of the facades, all of the nonsense, all of the lies, which is good news because ultimately it means that we can be set free. Set free to worship in spirit and truth and to love our neighbor in a way that this world would actually begin to see the glory of the Lord instead of all of the facadical nonsense that we have created. I don't even know if facadical is a word, so don't send me an email on that. I may have just made it. I may have spoken tongues, but you get it. <laughs> all right, so... <clears throat> Continuing on, notice that this language sounds very much like a sermon that you hear in the Gospels. What sermon is that? One called the Sermon on the Mount. These words poor and meek feature largely in that place, don't they? And it's very important that we recognize that this king is concerned for the cries of the poor. Now what I want you to not miss, and this is a Gospel category that will help you learn how to think, Notice that in every, and you could read any of the prophets. There's, I don't, I, I, immediately comes to my, I can't think of a prophet who does not take the people and the kings to task for how they treat the poor. Now what's interesting is how do you think they became poor? Who knows? Maybe they made some bad decisions. Maybe the systems were fallen and broken. Maybe it was a combination of all the above. But what you don't see happening is these prophets saying, hey, poor, maybe if you'd made better decisions and maybe if you hadn't done X, Y, or Z, then this wouldn't have happened to you like we do. Maybe if we had more the heart of Christ, maybe if we looked more in the image of this king, we would recognize Jeremiah's words from chapter 22 when he, he takes the king to task and says, look, 
You've built an amazing palace for yourself with all of this cedar, but let me tell you what you haven't done. You have not responded to the cries of the poor like the previous king whom looks like God himself by having done so. What, what if our salvation was based on us getting it enough together to warrant it? Because that's essentially what we're oftentimes saying to those who are in these situations. We oftentimes say to the poor, now listen, before we can help you, you've got you to get some things together, right? Because we don't want to waste our money because our money's precious. Our time is precious. Our talents are precious. And, we, you know, it, you guys are a mess. And so, hey, if you can get it enough together, you've got seats on the front row because nobody else wants them. Except for you guys. I'm proud of y'all. And you too. <laughs> is that it? Is that how the gospel works? That, that Christ comes and says, hey, listen, guys. You guys are a mess, and you've made a mess out of things, and I, I've looked at your life, and uh, God, I don't know if I can help you or not, because I don't want to wait. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big deal. I was the only begotten son of God, and I don't want to use my precious blood on some jack leg that's just going to mess it all up. So I need for you to get to a certain place so I can feel more confident about what I'm going to do for you. Is that what he does? No. And that's not what this king does to the poor or the oppressed or any of us who fall in that category. And we can spiritualize and say, well, he, now look, now once Jesus came, the poor became the poor in spirit. Right? Interesting. I'm going to preach from Isaiah 61. Remember, he uses that passage in his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. And what was it that got the people so doggone upset after all? He said that the Blessings of God had come to two people, Naaman the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath. Hmm. And they wanted to kill him after he said that. Now, why was that? Because they were racist. Uh-oh. Because they said that those people weren't worthy of the glory of the Lord, and how dare you speak the words from our very own scriptures in our temple. Woe be unto us if we miss... We tithe of our cumin and our basil and whatever it is you grow in your little herb garden. Woe be unto us if we tithe that and forget the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice, for which this king is the only one who can broker it at all. John Oswalt, and I didn't give you this quote, and I should have, but John Oswalt says it this way, and this is, a, this is me quoting him in paraphrase. He says, that um, there will never be an earthly king who can truly take up the cause of the poor and the oppressed because of the foundation on which his throne sits, which is the powers and the principalities of this world who deem that the poor and the oppressed cannot rise. There's only one king who has enough power within himself to take up the cause. There's only one king who doesn't need the economics or the influence or the power of this world at all, who cannot be influenced by any of those things. There's only one king who can do that, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And so does that mean that we don't try? Does that mean we don't get involved? No, we were created in that one's image. And so what does that mean we are to do? How are we to think? How are, to, how are we to approach these types of situations? Am I saying that what I'm saying is easy? Absolutely not. I've served in the inner city. I know, I know how hard it is. I know how incredibly 
awful things can be. I know the blame is plenty to go around. But I also know that when the gospel began to take root, there was no more beautiful thing I've ever seen in this world. I knew the parties were breaking out in heaven because one lost sheep was coming home. And so we need to put our faith in this king. Because if you put your faith in the kings of this world, it, uh, the politics of this world, and that doesn't mean we don't participate, so don't hear me saying that, right? We do. We, we are to participate. We are to be good citizens of this world. But we are to do it with le different lenses, different alliances, different allegiances. And we're to do it in such a way that it brings honor to this king, even if it is costly to us. And I do. I feel the weight of that. So, the question that I have from these five verses for us is how has God felled your pride? Not failed, felled, cut down. Right? I mean, fundamentally, at bottom, what is it that separates us from God? It is, for every single solitary one of us, it is our pride. What is it that continues to in, inhibit and cost us in our worship and our love of neighbor? It is our pride. So where has God laid the axe to the root of the tree for you? Even better question, what grew up in its place? See, for some of you, I'm afraid that what grew up in its place was anger and cynicism, if you're not careful. You need to consider that. You need to see where Christ, in dying on the tree, laid the axe to the root of the tree of pride for you, and, and you want to pay close attention. What's growing up from that? What shoot is coming forth from now said prideful stump? Because this is where we are transformed into the image of Christ. Is it easy? No, it's incredibly painful, isn't it? Like, for those of us who have lived a long time, I can say that because I'm in the empty nesters group, by the way. I know I look young, but don't let that fool you. If we've lived long enough, we, and, and are growing in Christ, what's one of the things that gets clearer and clearer and clearer? Our sin how far we are from the Lord our God, how unworthy we are. Now, let me be careful here because you could drift in what we call worm theology. No, that's not it at all. If that's what you were left with, yes, despair is your only hope. But I also recognize that the more years I go, though my sin grow larger, the image of Christ in which I'm being transformed grows larger and larger than that even still. Amen? So that it is not overwhelming. Because this king can do what no other king can do. Verses 6 through 9, let's read those. This gives us a vision of what's coming in the last advent. And in fact, it's going to be way better than even Eden. Because there won't be a tree to tempt us in the midst of this garden. There won't be a snake who lurks about, who calls for us to be disobedient to the Lord our God. Listen to what Isaiah says, the vision that he gives. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now let me make clear here, he's not just talking about creation. He's talking about these animals are representative of kind of who we are and how we function in the world. 
And so all of the things that separate us, what he's essentially saying here, if I had to summarize, is that the oppressor and the oppressed will dine at the same table under the reign of the same king, worshiping the same things, longing for the same things. And interestingly, he uses the image that a little child will lead them consistent with Isaiah chapter 9, this child king. And also, too, if you want to take time to study Psalm chapter 8, this language is pregnant within it. That God would destroy his enemies with babies and innocent children. And this child king will lead them. And it goes on to say, The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That means that the things that they feed on, the whole weight, the whole of who they are is going to be transformed and changed. The whole of who we are is going to be transformed and changed. How I long for all that separates us to be taken away at last. As I have befriended and had conversations with those who struggle deeply with sexual and gender identity. One of the things that I always conclude in my conversation with them is that I long for the day in which this no longer separates you and I. I long for the day, and I, I preach, and, and they've got to come to that in the gospel, by the way. I'm not saying anything universalistic. But I do. I long for the day when all of the struggles, whether it's race, whether it's politics, whether it's within our families, whether it's all, any, any and everything, if you, if, if you can't read this and long for this, then I don't know what else to say. And I'm sure you do. I know many of you. I know that you long for all that keeps us apart to be taken away at last. Because we don't have any good answers some days, do we? He goes on, verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. Some commentators believe that this is a very specific undoing of the curse itself, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This doesn't mean that Satan gets saved, by the way. That's not what this is saying. It's just saying that all that enmity will be done at last. Praise God. And it goes on to say, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's saying, Isaiah is saying, At long last, that which was called for in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 will come to full and glorious fruition. The world will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. All, all aspects of separation having been taken away in judgment but brokered in peace, eternally bought, and cannot be taken away from us. Amen? John Oswald, in the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, says this. He says, this mention of a child fits one of the recurring themes of the recurring themes of Isaiah's chapter 7 through 12. A child, not a strutting monarch, is the one whom God chooses to rule this world's great in innocence, simplicity, and faith lay the salvation of a globe grown old in sophistication, cynicism, and violence. So what hope do you have for the future of this world? How does it affect how you engage the various historical events, cultural trends, and those who think differently than you? How does it affect all those things? 
Because if your foundation is that you hope that by the winsomeness of your argument or the power of your argument or the logic of your argument, and if you think logic rules in this world, you're, you're not paying close attention at all. Because here's the great, and I'm, my daughter taught me this, and I'm thankful the Lord used her. I presented to her the truth, not the gospel truth, but the truth about a situation in full, and she looked at me and said these most terrifying words, which fells any logic. I don't care. What do you do with that? Can't do anything with it. So there must be something greater. Otherwise, you're led to despair and cynicism. All right, let's close out the verse and the sermon here. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, interesting, it went from a shoot to a root. Now, all that means is that not only is he coming up out of Jesse, he is the thing who has sustained Jesse the whole way along. This is Paul's Colossians statement of Christ holds all things together. And in him, all things, from him, all things come. So Isaiah is saying essentially that when he says He's both the shoot and the root of Jesse. Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of, of him shall the nations inquire. That just means even the Gentiles are going to say, who is this king? Who is this king of glory? And how do we follow him? He goes on to say, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we, know, we need to go to Israel and see the tomb of Jesus and that, that, that's his, that was his resting place that was glorious? Where's the true resting place of the king? Now, some of you may say, well, Cameron, I've heard you talk a lot about the ascension, so probably the throne at the right hand of God is a pretty good guess, and that's a pretty good guess. But it's not the place. The true resting place of the king is in the midst of his people. Don't forget what we have learned all along the way, that the purpose of the story in full, the purpose of the first advent, the purpose of the last advent is to restore God's people with him so that we could worship in spirit and truth and all enmity and separation and sin and uncleanliness and all of it is taken away. Amen? I know we're Presbyterians, but you can say amen. Just carefully. Make sure you articulate clearly. So it's important that we recognize, it's important that we never forget that God's grand desire has all along been from the beginning. This is not plan B, by the way. His desire from the beginning was to dwell in the midst of his creation with creation filled with the knowledge of him so that he could be worshiped rightly and joy and peace would reign. We forget that and it changes everything, doesn't it? goes on to say, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, and this is an echo to the first exodus and what will be the last exodus, yet a second time to recover the remnant from the remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So he's saying that he's going to call all of his chickens home. And what king can do that? What earthly king can do that? No king. Only Christ can do this. And we see it again and again and again. You get a small glimpse of it where in the New Testament? 
Where's the first glimpse that you see that, wait a minute, this is starting to happen? Where? Acts chapter 2. What's happening there? Beautiful picture, isn't it? That, and is that the, was that it in full? Was that it? Could we close? Acts chapter 2 is where we should end our scriptures? No, that was not the vision in full, but it was showing that it is continuing to unfold and this king is continuing to reign and this is continuing to draw closer to the last advent. So, how do we apply all this? What does, it, what does any of this mean to us? The sure hope of the last advent at the return of Christ allows us some things, and this is one of them, to be free of the frustrating dependence on leaders and powers and media and politics and blogs and all of the nonsense that's coming in that is part of the principalities bowers that are futile and they serve, and this is critical that you understand this, they serve to divide us. If we forget the biblical category of principalities and powers and how it functions systemically, we are in trouble. The second thing that it brokers for us is that we are free to be creative in how we think and fruitfully engage the problems of this world. If you, I wish I could take you with me back to Pleasant Hill neighborhood and just take you on a tour of this place I did it with people in and of the city of Macon who are much closer to it than you are, and they said, we have never seen a place like this. We didn't even know it was in the midst of our city. This is worse than any third world country I've seen. I had friends who have served in Guatemala and Uganda and other places, and they, they were in tears by the time we got through the neighborhood, and they said, this, this, this should not be true in our country, which is a pregnant statement, by the way. And it is true. And it's true all around us. And if you were to go with me and step into that, you would, you would, as I was, be utterly overwhelmed and wonder how in the world can we make a difference in this place at all. And if you were to trust the local government, you would find that that would be a waste of your time. If you were to trust the school system who took physical textbooks out of the hands of the children and put everything online in a neighborhood that does not have Wi-Fi in one single house, you would wonder, who cares at all? But, for those of us who serve there and serve in other places like that, we served a king who knows and is able to change everything. And beautiful things are happening very creatively in the midst of a very dark and broken place. If we had the eyes to see and the creative willingness to use our gifts to engage. Last thing that brokers for us is that we get to look forward with great expectation to dwelling with God in a renewed reality. I can't wait. I can't wait. And I don't know that I need to say anything more, so let's pray. Father, thank you for the first advent and all that it is purchased for us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Thank you that it makes us who are utterly unable to even consider being righteous, righteous through the imputed and given um, covering of the blood of Christ, just as you covered Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin. God, thank you that we have been given new eyes to see and new ears to hear and, and a heart of flesh instead of the heart of stone to be able to engage a broken and dying world at the behest of a king who can truly make changes that are eternal. 
Thank you that we have the hope of the last advent in which the, this world will be made new. And that we have the hope of all that is separating us will be taken away at long last. God, I pray that you would continue this day to stir within the hearts of your people a longing for the last advent, a longing to serve the king who is truly righteous and can change things in a creative, um, in a creative outworking in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to put your glory forth into very dark and broken places. May we no longer be afraid of the principalities and powers of this world because they have been declared um, defeated in the person and work of Christ. May we work with a great freedom for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.